my privilege is to be able to address you on the subject of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man in whom God poured out His grace in unusual measure. Yesterday, we began considering the evangelistic preaching of Charles Spurgeon, and there are so many aspects of this man that we could have considered. We could have targeted his doctrinal beliefs, his theological moorings that he held so dearly. We could be studying the many books and literary works that that he composed and that poured out of his pulpit. And we could be recalling the many ministries that he launched and founded and established to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and care for those in need. We could even discuss other aspects of his preaching. We could be discussing his command of Scripture and use of Scripture. We could be addressing his Puritan-like outlines with main headings and subheadings. We could focus on his use of figures of speech and analogies that made his sermon so vivid. We could be talking about his use of illustrations from common life and nature and history, but we have chosen for these addresses to lock in on this one aspect of this towering figure from church history to focus upon his evangelistic preaching. And the reason we have narrowed our attention upon this one aspect of Spurgeon, who is so dear to this seminary and college, is because this really is at the very epicenter of the man and his ministry. This is the true genius of Spurgeon. He was the greatest evangelistic pastor that God has ever given to the church. When he assumed his pastorate in London at age 19, there were only 10 active members in the New Park Street Chapel, with less than 200 in attendance in a worship center that held 1,200. The church was literally dying both physically and, I think, even spiritually. When Spurgeon passed away 38 years later, there had been over 14,000 individuals who had joined the church. And out of that 14,000, over 10,000 joined the church by conversion and baptism. And so his evangelistic preaching just towers over his ministry. And so for us to understand the, the, really the driving force of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, it necessitates that we consider his evangelistic preaching. That, that was the straw that was stirring the drink. That, that was the, the inner electric drive within him. Yesterday, we considered two headings, just to remind you. We considered his priority, which was to be a soul winner in the pulpit, to preach the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ with the intent of drawing, God drawing sinners into the kingdom of heaven. Every sermon um, was a gospel presentation in one way or another. And then we began considering his persuasion. What, what were the anchors of his 
uh, of, of his ministry that had such an influence upon him to be an evangelistic preacher. And we considered three of those yesterday. We considered his Bible convictions because he was so steeply grounded in the Bible, in the Word of God, he had to be a soul winner in the pulpit for the entire Bible is a presentation of the salvation that God has provided for lost and perishing sinners. And this second, we considered his Puritan readings, how as a young boy, he read the great Puritan classics, especially those that were steeped in evangelism. Uh, He read Richard Baxter as a call to the unconverted, Matthew Mead's The Almost Christian Discovered. And that left a lasting impact upon Spurgeon, and he carried that into the pulpit with him. And then third, we considered his own conversion, that he was actually brought to faith in Christ at age 15 under the preaching of the Word of God. He had grown up in a pastor's home. His father was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor, yet he himself remained unconverted. He had read the Puritan classics and and others as well, and yet it was not yet the appointed time for his entrance into the kingdom. And on that snowy day when he was turned into a a chapel along the way that he did not even attend to attend, yet there he was, a layman preached Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon was dramatically and radically converted to faith in Jesus Christ. He said from that point on, he could barely live five minutes without wanting to do something for his master and for his Lord, to serve him and to bring others into the kingdom of heaven. Because he had been converted under the preaching of the word in church, he therefore carried that out in his own ministry and life. And believed as the Puritans did that the preaching of the Word of God is the primary means of grace, of grace. And so I want to add two more um, aspects of his persuasion as we would continue to build out our thoughts at this point. And a fourth influence upon Charles Spurgeon, this is very important, is his personal mentor. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was discipled, he was trained, he was influenced by a towering figure in church history, a man that he had never met, a man who had already passed away and gone to be with the Lord some 60 years before his birth, a man who went to heaven in 1770, Spurgeon was born in 1834. That man was the greatest evangelist God ever gave to the church since the Apostle Paul. His name was George Whitfield. Whitfield was a man set on fire by the Spirit of God, a man who was singularly used to preach the gospel on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean and be the primary instrument in the hand of God that brought about the great awakening. Jonathan Edwards lit the fuse, but it was Whitfield who fanned the flame that became the explosion of the Great Awakening. 
More people saw George Whitfield than ever saw George Washington. He was the true founding father of our country. It is estimated that 80% of the colonists had seen Whitfield face to face as he preached up and down the eastern seacoast and was mightily used as a harvester of souls. At the same time, he led the evangelical awakening, Whitfield did, on the British side of the Atlantic Ocean. And it was Whitfield who captured the heart of Charles Spurgeon. It was Whitfield that, of whom Spurgeon said, often as I have read Whitfield's life, I am conscious of distinct quickening whenever I turn to it. In other words, there was a, a reviving of Spurgeon's own heart. Every time he picked up a, a, a Whitfield sermon or Whitfield's journals or Whitfield's letters or Whitfield's biography, it was like an electrical current was coursing through his soul. Spurgeon went on to say, Whitfield lived. Martin Lloyd-Jones would later pick up on that quote and say, other men merely existed, Whitfield lived. Robert Murray McShane, the favorite son of Scotland, would say, oh, for just one week of Whitfield's life. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was once asked, the, the greatest preacher he ever heard, and he said, oh, that is so easy. To tell you the second greatest preacher I've ever heard would be difficult, but unquestionably the greatest preacher is George Whitfield. He said, the apostolic times have come upon us again in Whitfield. So Spurgeon, picking up on that, said, Whitfield lived. Other men seemed to be only half alive, but Whitfield was all life, all fire, all wind, all force. Now listen to this sentence. My own model if I may have such a thing and do subordination to my Lord, Whitfield said, is George Whitfield. With unequaled footsteps must I follow in Whitfield's glorious track. Close quote. To understand Whitfield is to understand Spurgeon. In fact, there is not a proper understanding of Spurgeon's ministry in the pulpit without a foundational understanding of George Whitfield. Spurgeon stood on the shoulders of Whitfield and in a sense was a second coming of Whitfield. The only difference was Whitfield was an itinerant who traveled all over. But Spurgeon was anchored in one pulpit, yet nevertheless imbibed the evangelistic fervor and zeal of George Whitfield. I think it is for this reason that Spurgeon never preached verse by verse through any book in the Bible, that he always was drawing his sermons from various parts of Scripture with seeming no rhyme or reason what sermon would follow the previous sermon except for what God was doing in his own heart. But Whitfield was the 
example and mentor and really discipler of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The imprint of Whitfield was upon Spurgeon. Whitfield's most famous sermon was the nature and necessity of the new birth, where justification by faith alone was the primary emphasis of the Reformation, and rightly so, in the recovery of the gospel. In the Puritan age, there began to be an emphasis upon true conversion and the marks of true saving faith. But by the time church history progresses to the Great Awakening, the dominant theme of the Great Awakening was the nature and necessity of the new birth. And Whitfield would go into towns and go into the market square and say, I've come here today to speak to you about your soul, and would preach on the new birth. A woman once came to Whitfield and said, why do you keep telling us we must be born again? And Whitfield said, because, dear woman, you must be born again. That was Spurgeon. That was Spurgeon. And I wrote down just some of the titles of Whitfield's sermons because Spurgeon will become really an echo chamber of Whitfield. Just listen to even these sermon titles by, by Whitfield, The Folly and Danger of Not Being Righteous Enough, Christ, the Only Rest for the Weary and Heavy Laden, Marks of a True Conversion, What Think Ye of Christ, The Wise and Foolish Virgins, Blind Bartimaeus, a penitent heart, the gospel supper, the Pharisee and the publican, and my all-time favorite, the conversion of Zacchaeus, the resurrection of Lazarus, the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Saul's conversion, the almost Christian, justification by Christ, and another classic on regeneration. This would become the baton that would be passed from Whitfield that Spurgeon clasped as he carried out his pulpit ministry. It's not to say that Spurgeon did not address other issues and other doctrinal issues, but it was the gospel that had a magnetic pull upon the heart of Spurgeon as it had done upon Whitfield. And just to make a word of application here, every one of you in this chapel service today needs to be mentored from giants in church history. There will be a low ceiling over your head in spiritual growth and development if you are not walking with spiritual giants. It's the purpose of Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Moses, etc. You need these giants to take you by the hand, and their influence, their godliness, their piety, their doctrinal convictions to be poured into you. You need to sit at the feet of these great men and women from the past by reading their works and by being discipled by them. 
I was asked by Dr. Al Mohler to speak at Southern Seminary a couple years ago in their Mullins Lecture Series, and I said, what do you want me to speak on? And he said, I want you to speak on heroes. I said, heroes? Please explain. He said, my students do not have the right heroes. He said, all of their heroes tend to be on podcasts. All of their heroes tend to be contemporaries. He said, they need to be drawing from deeper wells. I want you to preach on heroes from the past. I agreed to do that, and the impact of that was significant. You need heroes in your life, men flawed yet faithful, whom God worked through in a powerful way, and to learn from them how they lived their Christian life and how they charted their course. Your Christian life will be somewhat limited without such figures being impressed upon you. It was an extraordinary, an extraordinary impact upon Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he was the greater for it. I want to mention one more thing as we're thinking under persuasion, Spurgeon's persuasion, what so rooted him and grounded him in evangelistic preaching, and it was not only his personal mentor, George Whitfield but also his ministerial calling. Spurgeon testified that he could not know for certain that he was called by God into the ministry until he saw his first convert under his preaching. In fact, Spurgeon would admit no one into the pastor's college who was not already preaching and who had not already seen fruit born in their lives. For Spurgeon, this confirmation came at age 17, when he first began to pastor, when he first began to preach. And after a Sunday morning sermon, one of his deacons came to him with the news that an older woman had been brought to faith in Christ that very morning under his preaching. And so Spurgeon said to the deacon, we must make a house visit with her this afternoon. And so Spurgeon, with the deacon, called upon this woman, anxious to hear what God had done in her heart and in her soul. And he later recalled, upon hearing her testimony, how my heart leaped for joy when I heard tidings of my first convert. I could never be satisfied with just a full congregation. I can never be satisfied with the kind expressions of friends. I longed to hear that hearts had had been broken, that tears had been streaming from the eyes of the repentant. How I did rejoice as one that finds great spoil that Sunday afternoon when my good deacon said to me, God has set his seal on your ministry in this place, sir. And for Spurgeon, it was the seal of heaven upon his call to the ministry. 
It was the validation. It was the confirmation. It was the guarantee that God had set him apart to preach the Word of God, of which he could not be certain until he saw one receive the gospel by faith. That experience never left Spurgeon, and he would reflect upon that first convert who took Christ by the hand and was led into the kingdom of heaven. Can you think of your first convert? Can you think of the first person to whom you have given a witness of the gospel, who actually received that witness, who either prayed with you in a dorm room or in a, at a camp or in a church, that you were the instrument in the hand of God to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ? Can you recall the first person that God used you to be the harvester of their soul? There may have been others who planted the seed. There may have been others who tilled the soil. It was God who gave the growth, but you were in the delivery room when they were birthed into the kingdom. That should be a great confirmation to you. Whether you have been called to preach or whether you have been called in some other area of service for Christ, that God is with you and that God is using you in, a, in an eternal way. So that is Spurgeon's persuasion. I want to quickly proceed to Spurgeon's preoccupation. In Spurgeon's evangelistic preaching, he was singularly preoccupied with the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm suddenly reminded of R.C. Sproul, who was my mentor, who explained to me that at the first day of every semester class that he taught in seminary in systematic theology, he always began the semester by asking this question, what is the gospel? He said that he was stunned year after year how men who had left their employment, sold their house, packed up their family, moved across the country, made great sacrifice to enter seminary who fumbled the ball year after year on what is the gospel. Sproul said correctly from Scripture, the gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel is the person and work of Christ. As Spurgeon would say, the more gospel we would preach, the more of Christ we must preach. As Spurgeon would say, if we would have more converts under our preaching, there must be more of Christ in our preaching. Spurgeon's preoccupation with the gospel was the same as the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. 
And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, the apostle Paul said, for I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It would say, Paul, wait a minute, You've, you said to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20 that you had proclaimed over three years the full counsel of God. And if we were to take the 13 epistles that Paul wrote that are in the canon of the New Testament, there would be a comprehensive systematic theology, bibliology, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, angelology, uh, anthropology, harmatology, soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, the full range of sound doctrine in Paul's letters. Yet, how could Paul say, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that all the lines of his theology ascended and rose and intersected at the pinnacle in the person and work of Christ. I don't have time to trace that out in all 10 areas of systematic theology with you in this lecture, but that also explains Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He, like the Apostle Paul, was always focused upon Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, preach Christ, He is the magnet. He will draw His own to Himself. Spurgeon said, the best sermons are the sermons that are full of Christ. A sermon without Christ is an awful thing. It's a horrible thing. It is an empty well. It is a cloud without rain. It is a tree twice dead, plucked up by the roots. A sermon without Christ, Spurgeon said, is an abominable thing. It gives to men stones for bread and scorpions for eggs. Yet they do so who preach not Jesus. A sermon without Christ is an awful thing. Spurgeon went on to say, if you leave out Christ from your sermon... You have left the sun out of the day. You've left the moon out of the night. You've left the waters out of the sea and the floods out of the river. You have left the harvest out of the year. You have left the soul out of the body. You have left joy out of heaven. You have robbed all of its all if you leave Christ out of your sermon. He said, leave Christ out of your sermon. There is no gospel worth thinking of, much less proclaiming if Jesus is forgotten. We must have Jesus, he said, as Alpha and Omega in our ministries. On another occasion, he said, you preach and you leave out Christ? Sir, go home and never come back to this pulpit again until you have something better to say. He said, I would never preach a sermon. The Lord forgive me if I do, which is not full to overflowing with my master. He said, I know one man who said, I was always on the old string. In other words, Spurgeon was as though playing a violin with only one string, and that string was Christ, and he was always playing Christ. And the man said he would come and hear me no more. But if I would preach a sermon without Christ in it, he said, he would come. 
Spurgeon said, ha, huh? he will never come to hear me preach because I will never preach a sermon without Christ in it. A Christless sermon? It's a brook without water, a cloud without rain, a well which mocks the traveler, a tree twice dead, a sky without a sun, a night without a star. A sermon without Christ is a realm of death, a place of mourning for angels and a place for laughter for devils. Oh, Christian, we must have Christ. Preach Christ always and evermore. He is the whole gospel. Preach His person, preach His offices, preach His works. He must be our one great all-comprehending theme. The world still needs to be told of its Savior and the way to preach Him. This dominated Spurgeon. As I said yesterday, whatever his text, he would take his text and make a beeline for the cross. He said, the simple preaching of Jesus cannot fail. Let me repeat that. He said, the simple preaching of Jesus cannot fail under the hand of the Holy Spirit to produce the very best effects. No fine words are needed, no swelling periods, just simplicity and earnestness will win the day in preaching Christ. He said, if I had only one more sermon to preach before I died, it would be about my Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that when we get to the end of our ministry, one of our regrets will be that we did not preach more of Christ. He said, let this be the mark of true gospel preaching, where Christ is everything, where the creature is nothing, where it is salvation all of grace through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying to the soul the precious blood of Jesus. Ian Murray has written a book, Forgotten Spurgeon, which has left a very significant impact upon my life, which first introduced me to Spurgeon in a very personal way. And he looked at the sermon titles when Spurgeon was 22 and 23 years old, and just a sampling of the table of contents his sermon titles were Christ about his father's business, Christ the power and wisdom of God, Christ lifted up the condescension of Christ, Christ our Passover, Christ exalted, the exaltation of Christ, Christ in the covenant, etc., etc. Murray recalls one sermon in particular that Spurgeon preached when he was 20 years old. In 1855, the sermon that Spurgeon preached was entitled, His Name Shall Endure Forever. And Murray tells how Spurgeon's wife, after Spurgeon's death, looked back upon 
that sermon over the many years. And Mrs. Spurgeon recalled that night when he preached the name of Jesus shall endure forever. She said, I remember with strange vividness over these many years, that Sunday evening when he preached from the text, his name shall endure forever. It was a subject in which he reveled. It was his chief delight to exalt his glorious Savior. And he seemed in that discourse to be pouring out his very soul and life in homage and adoration before his gracious King. But I really thought he would have died there in the face of all those people while he was in the pulpit. At the end of the sermon, he made a mighty effort to recover his voice, but utterance failed him, and only in broken accents could his voice be barely heard saying this, let the name of Spurgeon perish. Let the name of Christ perish last forever. Jesus, 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 crown him Lord of all. You will not hear me say anything else. These are my last words in Exeter Hall for tonight. Jesus, 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 crown him Lord of all. And Mrs. Spurgeon said, and then Spurgeon just fell back into the chair as though he had fainted. That was, that, that was the engine that was driving Spurgeon, the person, the work, the names, the offices, the acts, the rule, the supremacy, the sovereignty of the second person of the Godhead the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who had been dispatched by the Father, the one who had been empowered by the Spirit to carry out the enterprise of salvation. Spurgeon said, when I cease to preach salvation by faith in Jesus, put me in a lunatic asylum for you will be sure my mind is gone if you ever hear me preach and not preach Christ. The Savior was the center of his life, the center of his ministry, the center of his preaching. In 1892, Spurgeon preached what would be the last sermon he would ever preach, unknown to him and unknown to the congregation. It would be the last time he would stand in the pulpit of which this is a replica and preach at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And as he came to the end of 38 years of preaching at the, that place, he came to the end of the sermon and these are the last public words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ. 
either self or the Savior. You will find sin and self and Satan and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Jesus, you will find him so meek and so lowly of heart that you will find rest for your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There, was, there never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always found in the thickest part of the battle. The, the text from which Spurgeon was preaching had this military uh, analogy that was assigned to the Lord Jesus. He continues, when the wind blows cold, Jesus always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross ever lies on his shoulder. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also with us. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, tender, yea, lavish, abundant in love, you will always find it in Jesus. These 40 years and more have I served him, and I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service if it so pleased him. His service is life to me. His service is peace. It is joy. Oh, that you would enter in at once to his service. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus. Even this day. Amen. Those were the last words to ever come from the lips of Charles Haddon Spurgeon in a public pulpit. And yet they become the bottom line summation of over 40 years of preaching. He preached Christ and Him crucified. He was a fisher of men. He was a harvester of souls. And so it must be for our ministry. We must be about making much of Jesus. We must be about spreading His name that shall endure forever. We must speak of His virgin birth, His sinless life, His substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, his present enthronement, his sovereign reign, his imminent return, his eternal kingdom. We must be constantly and continually looking unto Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. How, how could Spurgeon preach with such power? How could he preach with such effect? And the answer is the last heading I give you very briefly, Spurgeon's power. Where, where did you find such power? And the answer is in the Holy Spirit.
rather than read the quotes that I have to give you on Spurgeon's dependence upon the Holy Spirit, I will simply conclude by sharing this testimony that he once gave. When the worship service began at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there were two platforms. There was a lower platform from which Spurgeon began the worship service, and there was a higher platform from which he preached to project his voice to 6,000 people. As he stood on the lower platform, there was no choir, there was no organ, there was no leader of singing. It was just the congregation singing at the top of their voice praises and worship to God. It was a true reform service in the simplicity of the service. When it came time to preach, Spurgeon would ascend to the higher platform where the real desk was. It's over in the library. It was a double spiral staircase that led from the lower platform to the higher platform. There were 15 steps that led up to where he would preach. Spurgeon was most aware of the weight of responsibility that rested upon his shoulders as he went forward to preach. Every word that he would preach would be taken down by a stenographer, type would be set, it would be set on his desk for him to edit the next day. It would be printed and sold in the streets of London and put on trains and dispersed around the United Kingdom. It would be the means by which, as I said yesterday, fathers would disciple their families, prisoners would be led to Christ, missionaries would remain empowered. It would be cabled across the Atlantic. Spurgeon, aware that this enormous weight was upon his shoulders, with every step up, he said this to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Fifteen times as he made his way to the pulpit. Spurgeon understood he could not preach except there be two stand in that pulpit. As he stands in the pulpit, there must be God in the man. There must be the primary preacher who is God. There must be the secondary preacher who is the man, Spurgeon. This should speak volumes to us here today. Whatever it is that God calls you to do, if the most gifted speaker of the English language who ever lived was desperately clinging to the Holy Spirit as he would step forward to preach, how much more so must mere pedestrians in life like you and me be clinging to the Holy Spirit every moment of every day to carry out 
God's will and God's work in our lives. I would remind you that Jesus said to his own disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing of any eternal value. You can do nothing of any lasting effect. You can do nothing of any redemptive work apart from the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit within you. You must be clothed with power from on high. And when we are, as Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. As we bring conclusion to the Spurgeon lectures and our look at Spurgeon today, let us be reminded of the myoptic vision we should have and must have of Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord and Savior, and how we must be filled with the Holy Spirit every moment of every day as we proclaim Him and carry out His work. Him who said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Let us close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the lasting influence and impact of an older brother in the faith, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who went before us and who ran his race with such excellence because your hand was mightily upon him. May you lay your hand upon each and every one of us here today. May we be endued with supernatural power to carry out your will, to do your work, for apart from you, we can do nothing. Bless this college, bless this seminary, bless this faculty, bless this president, bless all that goes forth from this place. May you use it as you used Spurgeon so long ago. In Jesus' name, amen.